millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. As it's New Year's Eve, what better time to take a look back at the year that was. What a year it was. 2018 has brought the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. It saw Vicky Phelan blow the cervical check scandal wide open. And the Irish women's hockey team had us all roaring at the telly as they played their hearts out against the Dutch in the World Cup final in London. To talk about these moments and lots more like them, I am joined by journalists Alison O'Connor, Kitty Holland and Jennifer O'Connell. You're all very welcome to the show. Alison, we can't say goodbye to 2018 or say goodbye to any year, in fact, from now on without going back to the highlight of the year for all four of us here, I suspect, which was the repeal. I completely agree. Um, and I suppose I will never forget um, the feeling or the atmosphere or that moment in Dublin Castle, the build up to it before the uh, on the day of the the referendum count um, when the announcement was made. Um, I suppose everybody sort of knew from the exit poll the night before that it was uh, a whopping victory. Um, but still that moment after so many years, so many decades and an issue that was so divisive in Irish society, it just was an incredible thing. And I remember going to the pub afterwards with some colleagues and um, it was just an amazing thing and how people in there, everybody was talking to each other, people we didn't know, still swapping, you know, stories. Um, and it felt sort of a little bit surreal. And I also think that it was an incredible campaign in terms of how it was run by the Together for Yes campaign. And I think sometimes that's maybe forgotten about or it's it's glossed over. When you consider that it was 99, nearly 100 different organisations in one group headed by three women, so you had three bosses, and you have to say on the law of averages or human relations, there had to have been rows along the way. There had to have been disagreements. We never saw even a hint of that. Actually, United I, Front I, I long Extraordinary for the book. Campaign. I long for the book that tells the story behind that because that's the bit that fascinates me yes, most. Yes, I agree with you. Kitty, you have been in the studio several times, actually, in the course of that campaign. Um, and your story was personal as well as political. I mean, you were the woman who broke the Savita story, which was hugely instrumental in this, in, in, in what happened afterwards. And also your own personal stories. Are you still amazed at what has happened or was it just something you came to expect in the end? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, 
that it was the, obviously the culmination of 33 years of women saying no to the Eighth Amendment and, um, and that grew and grew and there were moments along the way like the X case in 1992 and we had the C case and the D case and the Miss D and we had the fatal fetal abnormality women and we had Savita which I think shocked a whole generation of young women that didn't quite realise that this is what they were living in, you know, that there was a, we, we were living, they felt the women in their 20s had come through the Celtic Tiger in a very modern progressive country and then this happened and I think that really galvanised a lot of um, young women in particular to say, no, we're not having this. Um, but I, I think that particularly since the Savita story in 2012, a lot, those hundreds of groups organised together and they were trade unions, they were women's groups across the country, they were traveller women's groups, they were women's with disability groups, they were housewives, they were just older women's groups as well, coming together um, and and they're a sort of a bubbling, rising feeling among women that we, we have to do something about this and that grew and grew and grew um, and of course we had Miss Y um, and the terrible case with the asylum seeker and what happened to her which sort of kept the momentum going but I think what happened um, with the passage of the referendum was uh, was more than about abortion and I think that that is something that's been growing over the last few years as well among women and you know covering the abortion referendum the campaign I was really really struck by the amount of older women women in their 50s 60s 70s who were going to vote yes because of an experience they had during their pregnancy. I'm so delighted you've during, introduced that thread. During the during um, their pregnancies, during you know intimate issues in you know their sex sexuality and how they were treated. Um, and I was struck by them, like women saying that they had it. You know they had German measles during their pregnancy, and no doctor told them that this could affect the baby. And they were told to just go home and put up with the fact they had a blind child, or who had lost a baby late in pregnancy, or had lost a baby soon after birth, and how doctors and midwives and not necessarily midwives but the establishment said go home and just put up with it and have another and and the pain that women have carried and um and i i saw i think what happened when the passage of the referendum that that was a it's a it was a huge backlash i really from irish women against how irish women have been treated so it was much more than about the right to terminate pregnancy that you know was a crisis for a woman it was about women saying no we are, you know, we're here, we deserve respect, we deserve respect for who we are as women, our experiences as women, and are even getting a bit emotional talking about it now, but it was much more than just about abortion. This was about women in Ireland saying we, we deserve to be respected and our lives and our experiences deserve to be respected because they're different from what you men experience and, and we need to be heard. Jennifer. I'm even getting emotional listening yes. to Katie. And, you know, because we'd been warned for years that when the referendum came that it was going to be polarising, it was going to be bruising, it was going to be bitter, it was going to be nasty. We were dreading it. We were dreading it. For years, I remember, we were dreading it. We wanted it to happen, but we were bracing ourselves. And then when it came, the campaign was actually very compassionate. It was very humane. I had lots of conversations during those few weeks. I don't live in Dublin anymore, you know, so I'm kind of outside the media bubble that I would have been in. Just talking to other other parents that I knew, older women, younger women. And I, all I got was compassion and understanding. And even from people who were leaning towards voting no, I felt like they were doing it from a place of compassion and they wanted to hear those stories and they wanted to know what other women have experienced. So I feel like it was a really empowering time to be a woman in this country. And that for a long time, the narrative has kind of been hijacked from us. And we've been told that we believe certain things. And we've been told that older women will behave a certain way and that younger women will. That rural people would be dead against exactly. everything. And we yes. pushed back.
back against that and we said, actually, this isn't Ireland anymore. The Ireland that we are now is a compassionate, forgiving, humane, understanding place. And we understand that humans are imperfect. The human relationships sometimes don't go exactly as we'd like them to go, that life throws you curveballs. And we embrace all of that. And we, you know, and we, and we, I, I just felt it was a really powerful moment. We'd been dreading that there was this silent no all along, but in fact, there was this huge silent yes. And I remember the day of the results really well because it was my little daughter's fourth birthday party. And I just remember feeling so happy that she was never going to have to grow up with that horrible cloud hanging over her that we all had as teenagers in this country. Of, God, what if I had to go to England? And what if I had to, you know, have a pregnancy test? And what? And I, I, all of the parents who came to the house to drop their little girls off that day were hugging each other and going, isn't it amazing? And we mightn't have even talked about it ever during the campaign. But it was like, you know, we can talk now and we can breathe aside. Because you were never sure who you could talk to. No, you weren't. And But I did actually, I I found during the campaign that the the posters, while I hated them, and there was one outside my house that, you know, really upset me every day when I came out. But the posters kind of gave us an opportunity to have those conversations. So we'd be looking at them and, you know, a conversation would start about a poster and then you'd find out what somebody was thinking. And I had so many really interesting conversations with like older women who said, do you know what, I'd never have seen myself voting, yes, voting in favour of decriminalising abortion, but it's already here. And my priority is that if it's happening, it should happen safely. So they mightn't have been, you know, completely on, on the yes side, but they had looked and they had read and they had learned and they'd listened to stories. And I just think, you know, it was really to show the power of the personal story again. And one of my, one of my happiest memories is of my, I was waving my daughters and a few young people off to Roscommon to, to, to do a canvas. And I, I warned them. I said, look, Roscommon has been sort of Poor going Roscommon. against the grain. Poor Roscommon. <laughs> but nonetheless, I said, this could be a difficult day out for you. So hang tight and stick together and all the rest. And to make matters even more dramatic, they were told they could pick up the literature in a safe house. Um, on the way, um, so I said, "I said, safe house that tells its own story, girls." Now, so just you know, they came back from Roscommon absolutely brimming with hope and optimism and energy, and determined they were going to carry these campaigns on into the future. My, yeah. Now, will are they? Is that going to happen, Alison? Well, it's think? an interesting question, but you know, listening to Kitty, I was also thinking that um, you know we really have a lot. Irish women have a lot to be thankful to for Irish men who vote. Uh, in their, you know, hundreds of thousands who voted yes and I think who realised and listened. And why I went out one night with the Together for Yes canvas in um, Glasnevin, which obviously one would, you know, automatically assume would be more uh, a more liberal area than Roscommon. And pe- even then, people were very careful about what they said because there's that whole thing, as Jennifer said, that you, some, you know, you even during the campaign, you hardly spoke to, you know, friends or acquaintances about it. But we called, they called to one house and I was standing in the garden and a man came out and the dog was there. And, and first thing I remember is the dog was barking at the campaigner and she was obviously afraid of dogs. She still went up the, to the door, rang the bell. This guy opens the door quite distracted, saying, oh, the dog is there. I called the dog in. Uh, the canvasser did her bit. And he cut her off pretty quickly, saying, you have two yeses in this house, he said, but I have to go upstairs now. My wife is in labour. <laughs> <laughs> and, off, and off we went. The other major significant event, I think, during the year, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was the cervical check controversy which actually happened during, which broke during the referendum campaign. And I think there's a sort of a social study in all of that, how that, when it happened, how it happened, that it was another, as I became fond of calling it, issue below the female, Irish female belly button, which we had, which we all have always traditionally had trouble dealing with. 
And um, bringing it around to the modern day, I was at a conference two weeks ago in the Royal College of Physicians, funnily enough, organised post-cervical check. And there was a, a GP stood up, Deirdre Lundy is her name, she's American, gave a fabulous speech. She specialises in menopause and all that sort of thing. And um, she spoke... She spoke about how Irish girls, she said, are just not vagina friendly, was how she put it, all right? And it just really got, I was chatting to some women after thinking, all the hang-ups that are still there. And she quoted a statistic and she said that Irish women's, the our use of tampax, tampons is the lowest in the Western world. And that in itself, when you look back at all our controversies, the Catholic Church, abortion, the whole lot, which is sort of fascinating. Would you have thought that, Jennifer? No, I wouldn't. But I do think that in this country, when we talk about cervical cancer, there is bound up in all that conversation a bit of a censorious attitude and a bit of like, well, if you weren't having sex girls now, you wouldn't get the cervical cancer. Um, and there are all these things put about by the anti-HPV um, yeah. vaccine campaigners well, on was, the internet yeah, where they'll say absolutely. like married wi- monogamous women, you know, don't need to go for a smear. They don't don't need to worry about cervical cancer. But it was even the do. I mean, it's is that's one level of it, and then the other level of it. If you if you pull it back, is don't even use Tampax. Why not? I think. What well, I think it was that it would. Because I, I, I posted. Well, I posted it on social media. And there were there was women. You might who, break your hymen. I, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, lose your thank you for saving me from saying that. <laughs> and yes, Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm very old. I remember when this was actually believed to be true. Yes, a woman yeah, who told that, me yeah. about going, a friend told me about going swimming in boarding school and how she'd put the packet of Tampax into the, the trolley in the supermarket and her mother would take it out again. Kitty, in terms of what the, what the, the, the legacy of the cervical check scan, which I know is still going on, Lord knows, um, the women who came to the fore during that, who also be, who, who have become almost iconic now in this yeah. country's history. Yeah, well, I mean, it just reminds me of the hepatitis scandal and Bridget McCall and, you know, that there are these scandals every decade, I suppose, involving women's health. Um, and one hopes this would be one of the last, you know, that they would be, would be getting to grips with the fact that women deserve treatment. It just, you know, it just because it's a woman's issue does not mean that um, we should shy away from it. So I think with the cervical um, scandal, there was kind of, there was two different aspects of it, both of which were almost equally outrageous because one was the controversy itself, but then there was the mishandling of the controversy afterwards um, and there was all the misinformation out there and for a few days and maybe even longer, there were women who were actually terrified that they were going to get a phone call telling them that they had cervical cancer um, and the, I felt the HSE and the Department of Health were very lax in communicating and in reassuring those women that the, actually that wasn't the case, that anybody who was going to be getting a phone call already unfortunately knew that they had cervical cancer and that this was a retrospective audit of the smears of women who'd already been diagnosed with cancer. Is the media fail there though? Alice? I do think we have to hold our hands up and say yes. we didn't do as good a job as, as we could have done um, and I felt like that that's symptomatic of the confusion that there is around women's health and the, the unwillingness to get really stuck into it and even then, you know, even the things that the, the government tried to do that were supposedly good like uh, Simon Harris offering that any woman who still had concerns could go for a follow-up smear The knock-on effect from that, I was in a GP's surgery last week doing a story and the nurse there showed me, she said, these are the results we're getting back from smears that were done in July. So we're now that backlogged that people are going in for smears because they're worried and they're not going to get the results for six or eight months. 
And that's yeah. back to the way they outsourced it in the first place. Was the sort of what you remember? You used to have to wait over a year to get your results, and that's why they outsourced it to America mm-hmm. to was to try and speed it all up. And that's so that's I mean symptomatic of so not enough resources going into yeah. women's health to look so at. So we're coming to terms with this, test. and we have the controversy around the National Maternity Hospital. Mm. Um, I just want that bill to have to tell you. I mean, I think yes, church needs to be taken out of our healthcare. But I think that we look now at what's happening with the Children's Hospital, the extraordinary budgetary overrun there. It wouldn't take much for the government, you look at Brexit, to say, you know what, we can't afford a new uh, maternity hospital. There are parts of Hollis Street that were around before Dickens. I was writing about this last week. It signs on it. Exactly. I mean, for anyone who's been in there, the Rotunda, even the Coombe, which is the baby, if I can say that, of the three. Why don't they just uh, get the reassurance? Where I reproduced, where I reproduced myself. Um, is in pretty rag order. So I think that there's an element of, um, you know, biting your nose off to spite your face. I completely understand why I would have the reservations myself or would have had them. I think now we have to uh, realise that we've moved on, that it just wouldn't be tolerated if that happened in that hospital, that the full suite of services weren't offered and let them get on with it and get the contract signed or we will never have... Well, then just get, get the reassurances done and just but there's do a lot. But I mean, I think they have gone. They it's have not actually, that they won't offer the services. It's how they'll offer the services as yeah. well. You know, and it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. you know, the thinking that infects the way things are done. That is, it's not. But you see, I actually think that I can I can understand that, particularly given all we've just been talking about. But I think that we have moved on. I think that uh, it is a completely different mindset. We've had a reassurance from the Taoiseach, from the Minister for Health, from Rona Manny, who's been, you know, so close to so close to the thing, who's a woman that I would respect. And I just think, from a pragmatic point of view, ideally we would have everything completely crossed off. But from a pragmatic point of view, if it doesn't happen now, we could be waiting another ten years. Have no, we I moved on? Get, have get we moved the... on enough? I mean, I, I've had a, I've had two babies here in the last twelve years, and I had one in Australia. And the experience of having a child in Australia was infinitely different. It was like being on a different planet, mm. right from the moment that I was pregnant. In terms of the screening that I was offered, mm. you know, the full suite of really comprehensive screening was offered to me on my youngest child who was born in Australia. Whereas the other two who were born here, I was kind of asked, well, why would you want to do the nuclear fold test? And you know, what would you do about that? The implication being that me just wanting information about uh, potential issues that, that this child was going to have or may have down down the line meant that I might possibly be thinking about um, termination so they they wouldn't even want to offer and those I'll tests. I'll tell you one thing, the new master is being sworn in on the 1st of January mm-hmm. there's a mass being held to market in the hospital so I would like to know. Which, see, ideally, ideally, no, you ideally could say nothing. no, no, but ideally that wouldn't happen. I can see, I can yeah. see your point, but I think we also have to accept that this is the this is the context in which everything happens in Ireland. We were dominated by the Catholic Church. Of course, I'd like it all thrown out in the morning. Goodbye, good riddance, good luck. You know, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. But it's not going to happen that drastically. So I think that if it means that we are, I mean, I'm, I'm repeating myself now, that this new this new facility, which is so badly needed, doesn't go ahead, that we hand the government an excuse not to sign those contracts. Um, and, at a time and when money it, is getting scarce. At a time when money is getting project. very scarce, yes. that we really will, will end up... Um, you know the the worst far, far by but far the worst far. We keep being told there's money's no object for things like housing. That the boom is yeah. back, the recovery is on, and then we're told when we need stuff, 
like a health service that works, oh, money's scarce. I mean, I just, you know, I don't think money is scarce, actually, if you want to find it. Yeah, but and even I if you, I mean, right. yeah, but I, but you see, I think, but that, that's almost making the point in that if we, if, if you say to the government, fine, you've promised us a new hospital, go ahead and build it. But if you say, I'm not happy with you building that until you do X, Y, and Z, that suits the agenda of not building. Or at least begin by clearing that ruddy car park and just yeah. at least getting the, the, uh, the planning side. And maybe order. taking down the statue of the Virgin Mary that greets you when you walk onto the campus. They could certainly yeah. do that as well. <laughs> I think that would. I think that would be a very good symbolic first well, start. It would. You know, it would. Mm. Now we're going to move on in a rather brutal way. Um, although childbirth is kind of brutal when you think about <laughs> oh, it in God many it ways. Um, the Belfast rape trial was a huge talking point, and also in my ears was very divisive. Not in studios like this. Not among women like us. But nonetheless, out there, I was genuinely very shocked by some of the stuff I heard being said by women as well as men. Jennifer, what are your memories of it? I mean, I think if if the if the repeal campaign was kind of a high point of the year, this was definitely a low point of the year for women Um, who will ever forget the content of those WhatsApp messages um, and the horrible realisation that there are young, educated, smart, successful men in this country that still look on women as fundamentally pieces of meat. Um, And I think, you know, it is important to say that they were fully acquitted um, and they were found not guilty and and all of that and nobody is is questioning any of that. But I do think that the experience of the evidence and listening to that evidence and reading it every day in the papers was extremely bruising as a woman listening to it. And I think it was quite a traumatising time to be a woman in Ireland. Um, And I've spoken to, to lawyers since who would take the view that because they were acquitted and, and they were named that um, that the reputations of Paddy Jackson and Stuart Olding have been absolutely destroyed and wrongly destroyed. Um, and I accept that. But I think, on the other hand, that's to underestimate the extent of the public shock and outrage that there was over the content of those uh, those messages and the attitudes that we saw betrayed to women um, and a whole a whole kind of subculture of this very toxic masculinity where women are seen as you know pieces of meat to be traded fundamentally. Kitty, what do you remember about it? I think that uh, the, the the WhatsApp messages and everything. What was shocking, I suppose, was um, having that in our face that this is this is the way men and young men and and boys um you know teenage boys would talk about women but i've i've a 16 year old daughter and she um talks about that she is horrified at the way some of the boys in her school will treat and talk about women who are young women girls or who who are her friends and will refer to their bra sizes and will refer to and you know and and grope them as they're walking in the corridor and that's in public that's in front of everyone a bit of bravado god knows what they're saying to, about the about the girls in is the school is that just evil dublin kitty oh, i'd say that's i mean i'd say that's the western world to be honest um, i mean and i think um, and how does your daughter deal with this she's disgusted by it and horrified by it but then you know she's also buys into i suppose a lot of this consumerism of and kind of really warped ideas in my opinion of beauty that are being thrown at um, teenage girls now, that they must have, you know, they must have false eyelashes and they must have... I mean, my daughter is beautiful, 16-year-old, says she would love to get lip fillers because she fixed her lips aren't big, you know, and 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 uh, she has a friend in school who's been told when she's 18 she can get cheek fillers to make her... her yeah, I mean, there's women at it too, you know, who are feeding this culture um, or having it fed to them that they must 
be a certain way to be beautiful to the world. So, and I don't think that helps in, in trying to, you know, there's a toxic femininity as well as a to- toxic masculinity. And I think it's for us all to talk about. It's not just young men. Young women are under horrible pressure to look kind of warped, in my opinion. Barbie yeah, doll Kardashian, kind of. I'm yeah. afraid. I mean, isn't that the, the, isn't that the, isn't that the physical model, Alison? Well, yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> Oh, my it's got stomach, worse. Than my stomach is knotting. Much worse. Yeah, my stomach is knotting. Listening to Kitty, I'll be, we'll be heading into that territory in the next, in the next few years, and it's it's really difficult because you're you're um, you just don't know how to handle it. I mean, even you know, normally with things, even with parenting things, there's stuff that you can go and you can talk to your friends or even talk to somebody like Kitty who's in the middle of it and say, "Have a cup. What do you think? How do you handle it?" And nobody really has. Uh, has answers from what yeah. I can see. Because you have parents, to take them seriously. Yeah, when parents, your daughter yeah. is saying to you, yeah. my lips are too thin and they're yeah. going, your lips are actually huge. <laughs> they're yeah. gorgeous. Um, no, no, no. And she's actually upset. Now, she's not upset about it. But if she was upset about it, it's just something. But, you know, you have to take seriously when they're having kind of body dysmorphic talks about themselves. You know, you can't be dismissive of it. So how do you deal with it? I mean, what, how much of that is, is the legacy of, do you think, the 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 free streaming porn era which yeah, we're now absolutely. 12 years into yeah, yeah, yeah. that has changed I think young people's idea of how women should look first of all in yeah. a superficial way but very much how people have sex what a healthy yeah. relationship looks like what's expected I've heard some you know really horrific stories about yeah. people in their first sexual encounter um, doing things boys doing things to girls thinking that maybe putting a hand on a girl's throat is what you do when you're having normal healthy mm-hmm. sexual relationships uh, I'm aware of a, a video that was circulated um, in a school recently with a, a first-year child. Um, a first-year child made a video of herself with a toothbrush and she wasn't brushing her teeth. Uh, <gasps> and it was circulated by... That doesn't, I mean, I'm shocked, but it doesn't surprise yeah. me. Well, I, I think it's, I, it's, it's, yeah. it, that the whole idea of sexting is something that, as a parent, um, it, it not wanting to be censorious of my children as they get older, but I find it really terrifying. Mm. Well, I think that it is... I actually think it is criminal, you know, that you should... that that somebody somewhere should be charged... With the, because of the idea that our children are getting out even of primary school without discussion being had about pornography. Particularly, actually, in all the more so in mixed classes, you can have the conversations at home. Of course, you can, and that I think you have a huge responsibility as a parent to have that conversation with your child. But how powerful for that child that conversation to be held with their peers. And I mean, it can be done in an appropriate, it, it can be done in a way that you're, um, you're saying to, ch- to kids, you come across this, it's not real. It's not the way it happens in real life. Nobody, I mean, I, not just it, for this, for me, is not just for women. I think of a 12 year old boy seeing something like that and thinking, that's the way I'm supposed to behave. Yeah. Who's like awash with hormones. It's just, you just, know, it's, the whole thing is just so, Infinitely confusing. I read yeah. Emily Pine's collection so of fabulous this book. year, fabulous this week, one of my reads of the year. Yeah, unbelievable. Too, um, and in one in one instance, she she refers to being out because she's so involved in theatre, yeah. and she referred to this theatre show that was going on, a smash the patriarchy show, which involved twelve near naked women sort of dancing, floating around a stage, and she was absolutely astounded at, at how waxed they were. Yeah. In a, sma- yeah. in a smash the patriarchy dance. Um, and she also said, and how very bare they were. 
And this is, you know, this is Emily Pine, who's, who's, as, uh, yeah. who's as right on as anybody in the studio or out there. And yet this is what struck her. And isn't this where we all get very confused? Because on the one hand, we defend women's choices. If you yeah. want to wax or wear half nothing, that's your choice. On the other hand, here we are agitating about what this is doing to the next generation. Yeah. I, I mean, there's discussions in school. I mean, the Ruth Coppinger has... A, put forward a bill about factual sex education yeah, in schools. Really good and initiative. it's really, really yeah. important. And I suppose it's, we and talk it about the baptism. With, they came up with the committee, the Arctic yeah. Committee on we, the 8th. Yeah. We talk about the baptism barrier in terms of getting our kids into schools, but the, the, the stranglehold that patrons have on what happens in schools has to be broken in some uh, way. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, this He's is... He's just been through it in my house, actually. We've done the, the sex education thing. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked, when I went along to the information evening for parents. There was no mention of homosexuality whatsoever in the in the curriculum there was no mention of pornography they went into quite a lot of detail on heterosexual sex yeah. um, but mm-hmm. absolutely no mention that you know a number of you might not actually ever be interested in somebody the, I mean, of the opposite so this should be coming down from the centre for curriculum and mm. assessment or whoever sets the curriculum there should be a curriculum for sex education that comes from central government and says this is what's taught I, I suppose Kitty really, what it brings what, it, what, it, what, it, what it, I keep coming back to we began with the Belfast rape yeah. trial and we have segued into this thing about confusion well, over our positive, Cathy, to come out of the rape trial for me, it's that, and it ran in tandem with the abortion referendum and the committee on the 8th coming out of the Citizens Assembly, was all this discussion made all the more acute uh, about contraception, about education and consent, that that was a really massive conversation and if it is any consolation to that poor young woman in Belfast, it is the idea that maybe those things, those changes will come about, even about how we're looking down here, and, and it happened in the North about, about how ra- rape trials are conducted, mm. that it gives her some tiny bit of... The Gillen report solace. is a very concrete yeah. example. That that's the report that was commissioned in the aftermath of the Belfast rape trial, and um, Gillen has it presented an interim report a couple of weeks ago, um, and there were 200 different recommendations for ways that rape trials are conducted, and a lot of which I think will be listened to and paid attention to down here where we're also conducting a review of how rape trials are, are done um, and that's the O'Malley review that's going to report next year. So I think there is an opportunity because the difficulty is that when it comes down to a question of consent, it is very, very difficult to prove the absence of consent. Um, and I did a piece on this recently. One of the barristers that I spoke to in the piece made a really good point, I thought, which was that we now do have a very good definition of consent and he feels it should be printed out and it should be stuck up on the back of every single toilet cubicle in every bar and every nightclub in the here, country. Here. Because young men don't know, for example, that if they have sex with a woman who is insensible with alcohol, she is unable to give consent. Do the women even know this? Yeah. I no, mean, they don't. Is, no, no. I mean, they, it, it, but these should be on all yeah, toilets. But Cathy, look, I think that if you, this is again going back to our history, it, there's, a, there's a key thing that is not told in my mind to young girls. And it's diff, as I, I think culturally as Irish people, it's difficult for us to have this conversation. But I think that it would be so empowering to young women if you say to them, you know what? You too deserve pleasure out of any sexual encounter that you may have. And if that's your baseline, I think actually it would be a very, very good start. Not that you're here to service X because he's a rugby jock or Y because he's big in the GAA or that, you, you know, you think that... Um, service is, is a very good phrase. Yeah, is, you know, this is the way, the way all of this works. If you send a young girl out thinking, you know, I'm, I'm entitled to get as much out of this as he is. 
it's a pretty good starting point. Look, on the weirdly upside, there was the case in Cork of the where the this lay song came into the evidence, Kitty. Um, and there was the most fantastic outcry about that that we might not have seen even yeah. two years ago. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, we, there was plenty of times you'd hear that the evidence in rape trial would be looking at, you know, what the woman was wearing and, you know, and, and was she in some way asking for it. But yeah, I mean, and I think it was wonderful when, again, to mention Ruth Coppinger held the thong up in up in the, which apparently she got in Dunn's stores up in Stephen's Green Centre that morning, um, and held it up in the um, in the doll chamber and made everyone feel really uncomfortable, like made everyone squirm with uh, kind of like cringe when it was held up. Why bring something... Because she was saying that's how it feels when a woman's underwear is trawled over in a in a court of law, and it's absolutely irrelevant. And whether you want to wear, you know, big, huge spandex knickers, or you want to wear uh, no knickers at all, I mean, you, you know, no means no, and um, and clothes are irrelevant. I mean, yeah, I think it was a wonderful moment. Well, you, it, I think as well, we can't fix this problem just within the legal system. I mean, there are all kinds of things being looked at in the legal system. There are all kinds of things that could happen, like judges could be empowered to instruct juries to disregard rape myths and all of that would be really good. But actually, we need to get to the root of the problem, which is that juries are going into deliberate with these rape myths deeply embedded in their consciousness and deeply embedded in society. There was a Eurobarometer polled on in 2016 that found 21% of Irish people think having sex without consent is okay in certain situations. That's 21%. One in five people thinks that having sex without consent is okay in certain situations. And those situations include um, being drunk or on drugs. 11% of people felt it was okay. Um, and 9% believed going home with someone or wearing provocative clothing could justify rape in certain situations. So, I mean, that's what we're dealing with. So, you know, as much as the legal system can do its part and it should do its part, and I'm very optimistic that it will do its part and over the next year that there will be some um, measures suggested, maybe legal representation for complainants in rape trials and that kind of thing, although that's um, not everybody agrees that that's the way to go. But certainly I know um, the, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre would feel that's the way to go. But actually, as a society, we need to start in schools, we need to start before before they get to the age where this is relevant to them and we need to start talking about what is consent what is as Alison says what is a healthy sexual encounter it's one where both people are left happy yeah but I think if you um, on the whole basis of this 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 issue of the thong and I suppose it's important that we say that there was a, a verdict of not guilty in that uh, in that case. In one way, the fact that it went worldwide and the sort of look at what's happening in Ireland. But I think it wasn't even I think that every country identifies with that because it still exists. And I sort of smiled when Jennifer said saying, I think if you say if a judge uh, in his charge to a jury said, now ignore rape myths, I think a significant amount of the jury would have went, you what? You know, nobody has any clue what they are deeply embedded, but nobody really knows what 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 they are. So and I've written actually myself uh, a couple of columns this year. If you were to go back over the archives of the last few months and the number of trials that there have been relating to women being abused, raped. I mean, they are app. It, it the is number of women who've died murdered this year. It is actually I mean, it's always there. There was a period where I thought, am I imagining this? But I actually went back over the couple of the previous weeks and it was it was completely overwhelming. And I think that it, Jennifer is right. It's only through starting literally in primary school. I read something last week on social media where in some American universities you can go to a vending machine and get the morning after pill. And that made me, it's something that's being introduced, it's quite new, and that made me realise, boy, we have an awful long way to travel. Can I just say, though, you know, saying about the, the, the 
empowerment of women sexually and to be respected and all that and starting in primary schools. It also, it's, I mean, this is also goes back to just the kind of lower status of women in society generally. And if you are um, earning less than your male counterparts, if you're doing more of the care work than your male counterparts, if you're expected to do all the, you know, the Christmas shopping and everything, that you're subservient in some way to men. It, it's it's multi-layered, this issue about, about women being respected and it feeds through then into the bedroom and, you know, and how men can treat women. But it's across society that, you know, women need to be respected. It's in the workplace, it's in the, the home workplace. and in the bedroom. And we've nearly forgotten about the Me Too movement. I was just going to say, men are having their own crisis now. And, you know, and, and I'm not belittling, I do think that decent, good, genuine men are actually having a bit of a moment where they don't really know how to be around women. And there are a number of surveys that have come out, uh, admittedly some of them in the US, but in a study by uh, Pew found that 51% of adults said men don't know how to interact with women. And Sheryl Sandberg's organisation Lean In found that senior managers were choosing not to mentor women anymore, not to have lunch alone with women, not to go for coffees with women because they don't know how to be around women in the aftermath of Me Too. And like I'm tempted on the one hand to go, Welcome to our world, boys. Yeah. You know, we have been watching our behavior. We've been checking ourselves. We've been, you know, thinking, is this a safe situation for me to be in since we were 10, 12, since we came out of the womb? Without even yes. thinking, it's an, we're on, you know, we're on autopilot. If you're walking home at night, you're doing that little narrative in your head. Well, I go down that lane. I won't go down that lane. Was, does that taxi look okay? Maybe I won't go into that taxi. I'll wait for another taxi. We're doing that constantly. So well, then, men have women to do need it to mentor bit. women. You know, it's, it's because women have always been slightly cut out of that kind of, uh, how the boys get on. I mean, I even feel it in journalism that, you know, uh, I see, my male colleagues going for pints with contacts, you know, and I'll meet you for a pint and we'll do it. Now, if I was to say to a man in, you know, Tuzzle or something, can I meet you for a few pints and we'll talk about it? He'd think I was trying to pick him up. You know, you just women. A round of golf, Kitty. Women can't do that kind of networking in the way that men can. So, so what are men, we to do? women have always had to sort of have permission to, you know, well, women can mentor women until the men realise how to respect us. So I know we didn't have enough women. women. I know, levels, I know, but, but we, this, I suppose it will work its way, itself out. But, you it's know, on men now, I think. They need to, they need, I, I, what I get really frustrated with this is that we're always expected to sort it out for the men. Yeah. We have to tell them how to fix a problem that they created. I feel like going now over to you, why don't you go and have the conversations that we're having where are all the podcasts happening with four men sitting around a table talking about how they interact with women? We're going to move on to something infinitely more cheerful, which is the achievement of the women's hockey team this year. Who's up for a chat about hockey? I hated hockey as a child. Right. Absolutely hated I was very bad at it, Kitty, yeah. so I'm not an ideal, but we had a couple of the hockey women in the studio here. And actually, it was one of the high points of my year. There was such undiluted joy about it, Alison. Did you Yes, the and I suppose so because I did play a little bit of hockey but it would have been much more a GA household. So in some ways it kind of came out of left field and it wouldn't have been something I'd have been following prior to that. But it was just magnificent and to sit down with my two daughters and my husband um, you know, and to watch to watch the last couple couple of games, it was just fantastic and they were just amazing women and what they did, again, on far more limited resources. Um, and I suppose you also bring that on even to, to women's football. 
and going to the final in, in Croke Park and that he, I think was there for something like 55,000 this year. Um, a huge crowd and showing that when, and the quality, it was said a number of times this year, there's an awful lot of talk about the quality of uh, men's Gaelic football, uh, but that's certainly not an issue. Um, and the TV coverage the women. is really bringing that on, isn't it? It, it, abs- hugely it absolutely is. And it, it, it gives a lie to that um that whole idea that people aren't interested in in women's sport. I think if it's if it's if it's played at a good standard, it's it's good to watch. It's entertaining. It's given the coverage. Well, then it it then gets the people who are interested in watching. Now, Jennifer, moving to ever higher <laughs> levels in society and otherwise, you were almost in the bridal party at the uh, Prince Harry Meghan Markle. I wedding. was practically her bridesmaid. Yes. I, I rang my mum and she kept saying, "What are you? Going to, what are you going to wear to the royal wedding?" I was like, "You do understand that when you think I'm at the royal wedding, I'm on the street about half a mile away talking to people who are sitting around drinking pims." But uh, yeah, no, I, I got to go over to cover it, which was which was great fun, um, and it was really interesting insight into because I think you know. We're all a little bit perplexed by this absolute fascination that people have with Meghan Markle. It is no secret that if a headline goes up on the Irish Times homepage with the words Meghan Markle in the title, it's going to go straight to the top of the most read. It could be about Meghan Markle's tights. It could be about how often she touches her bump. There's just this absolute fascination. So I think what I got when I was over there was she appeals to a broad section of people. So you've got the young feminists who like her, the Americans like her, the kind of the cool young Londoners like her. But then you've also got kind of older royalists who'd be very traditional who mightn't have been so well disposed to her but by God they love Harry and now they and they all talk to me about oh I remember him as a little boy walking behind his mother's coffin and now he's so happy I'm so happy to see him happy but I think where she I think really what we're fascinated with is that she has sort of taken on Diana's mantle in a way that Kate Middleton never could have because Kate Middleton is far too home counties healthy and an all round good egg whereas Meghan brings with her the promise of a little bit of damage and maybe a little <laughs> bit of there's a little bit of mystery and she might kick back a bit and she might upset the you know so we're all kind of waiting for the day that Meghan starts causing proper drama there's there's promising indications of it uh, I, I already I you see the media arc that story it started with the story that she demanded this particular tiara and the Queen didn't want her to have it that you could almost have put it on your calendar you know here's where the media is going to turn on her and now it's this whole notion that she's cut her father out um, and, and why she, wouldn't and she, she given the toxicity are, of the are, yeah, yeah, daggers are, exactly yeah. yes, that yeah. it's you know it, in some ways it's so predictable but I agree with everything that Jennifer well, little just take said is may, one I, photo. may I second yeah, yeah. but she, there's, it's, on a human level she's just fascinating and also I suppose it's that thing she's utterly beautiful so just even to look at her. It's a pleasure but to She's look. almost pleasure. kind of relatable in the way that any sort of a Hollywood celebrity is. But yeah. I think the, the, the turning point is going to come. My prediction for 2019 is that Harry at some point will be photographed looking a little bit less than happy or maybe, you know, yeah, a little yeah. dishevelled or a little bit. And then it'll immediately be the marriage is in trouble. And then everybody's going to turn on her because as long as she makes Harry mm-hmm. happy, I think that the really traditional hardline royalists will forgive her anything. Well, can I just say my outstanding image of the wedding, which I got totally sucked into. I went down just to see her dress, to the, watch the television, and I ended up two hours later still looking at the screen. But I don't know if any of you remember the shot of Zara. Is Zara her name? Princess Anne's daughter, who was actually nine months pregnant. Yes. And straining to stay yes. still oh, in right. her seat and looking completely fed up. I thought that was an adorable shot. Um We'll just refer very briefly, Kitty, to the election of Mary Lou MacDonald as the president of Sinn Féin. Have you anything to say about that? 
Well, I mean, I think it's very difficult for her um, because I think there are, I mean, I could, this is might might go into being a politics podcast, but uh, I think there's tensions within Sinn Féin which are coming to the fore now in terms of the, the project that Sinn Féin is. And um, obviously Brexit is um, terrifying them, I think, because um, if, if there's a hard border, they could really lose control of parts of the north. I think she's in a really difficult position because she's um, been put forward as this kind of modern, middle class, um, inoffensive, no, no ties with the past. Um, and yet in the north... That's what Sinn Féin actually needs to provide, I think, actually, is some um, continuity with the past and the sense that they are still the strong defenders of the nationalist tradition. Um, and they, are, I think, are very worried about losing control of parts of Derry and West Belfast in the event of a hard Brexit. So, I, th- I mean, that's a, my kind of quick summation of it. It's just a woman's luck to be to come into as president of a party, just when the whole thing Sinn is about Féin, to... Sinn Féin in the North and Sinn Féin in the South are two different parties. They have two different jurisdictions to deal with. They have two two different sets of politics to deal with. And even in the South, they're now trying to straddle two things. They're trying to be working class, appeal to the working class and try to appeal to the middle class. I think she's got an incredibly difficult job trying to hold Sinn Féin together. I think, I mean, their raison d'etre is United Ireland. Everything else comes second to that, Um, whether that's the housing crisis or whether it's abortion rights in the North. um, They will compromise all the way towards trying to get to Cape on Road to um, what they want now is a border poll. Um, I think she's dealing with a really um, fractured split party and um, and a very fractured kind of split well, island. Theresa May coming yeah. in at the worst possible There's almost time. a sense, I think, when you see a woman in a senior position like that in politics that there's a certain constituency waiting for her to fail. And, you know, then they were de- they were delighted when Leonie Rita didn't perform very well at the presidential election because, oh, look, that's reflecting badly on Mary Lou, when in reality it wasn't. I mean, we do see presidential elections as completely divorced from the cut and thrust of daily political life. So I don't think anybody... The Roth vote is really... Would, yeah, no, I'd sort of disagree agree there in that because she was a new leader and chose to contest it I felt it did reflect on her um, even though I thought that Leah was a good Leonie was was actually a good um, a good candidate it's that old thing that you never know how anyone is going to perform as a political leader no matter what they've been like mm. and she had been Jerry Adams understudy for so long but I think I actually think that she has had a rocky start and that it's a really important time for even the Christmas break now to some time for reflection. I think she she definitely has it if she can refine it um, uh, for the new year. Um, she'll 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 settle into it. But uh, there is there is a higher standard. There's not. I mean, the, there's no other female political leader in the in the country at the moment, leader of a party. Um, so it means she's under additional scrutiny. Just briefly to say one of the other important political things during the year in relation to females was Vote All 100, the 100 years since women got the vote, were able to stand for election, the election of Countess Markovich, uh, and there was some fantastic events during the year. And even the um, establishment of the Women's Caucus in, in the Dáil has been a really positive uh, development. And they had a massive international congress uh, earlier in the year where they had women parliamentarians from, from all over the world. So I think that was a very positive thing, given how, how male Leinster House still is. Well, if it does nothing else but bring people out to vote, all of those events, that's one thing this should achieve going forward, as they say. Now, before we finish, I want to mention some of the women we have lost this year, uh, beginning with Emma Vignohuna, Dolores Arirden, Justine Valdez, who was abducted and murdered by a man, Monica Barnes, a stalwart politician um, who has not been sufficiently acknowledged at all, in my view, Nan Joyce, traveller rights activist, 
And um, I'm just going to go off into the international sphere and Aretha Franklin, who I miss terribly. Jennifer O'Connell, Alison O'Connor, Kitty Holland, thank you so much for coming in to look back at the year. And what a year it's been! And that was confusing and joyous and celebratory. And that's it for today. Thanks again to our excellent panel, Alison O'Connor, Kitty Holland and Jennifer O'Connell. You can find the Women's Podcast on iTunes, Spotify and all good podcast apps. And remember, we are fond of praise, so feel free to subscribe and write a review while you're at it. If you want to get in touch with us directly, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. And until next time, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.